to the choir for that magnificent rendition of Bread and Roses. I want to just say a word about that anthem before I offer you the reading this morning. In January of 1912, one out of every three workers at the American Woolen Company in Lawrence, Massachusetts, one out of every three died before the age of 25. American Woolen was one of the largest textile mills in America, employing some 40,000 people, more than half of them girls between the ages of 14 and 18. And for the seven years prior to 1912, wages and living standards had been in steady decline until in that year they stood at an average of $8.76 a week. Few of the workers could afford anything other than bread and molasses and beans for their diet. And finally, spurred on by the international workers of the world, the famous Wobblies, the workers struck. It was the first case of mass picketing in the country. It was the first strike by a largely foreign-born workforce. And most importantly, it was the first strike led by women. And the reaction of the authorities was harsh and severe. Children as young as 10 were beaten in the streets. And as the police billy clubs and the fire hoses rained down upon them, the women chanted, we want bread, but we want roses too. 
James Oppenheim turned that cry into a famous poem, and over the years, that phrase, bread and roses, was adopted by others beginning first with the Irish Labor Party until today it stands for the importance of both beauty and justice to the full realization of the human calling. The reading this morning is taken from an excerpt from a book by Frederick Beekner, who was for many years the school minister at Phillips Exeter Academy. It's called The Alphabet of Grace. And in this reading, Beekner tries to explain that religion is not just a matter of ideas so much as of mystery. The reference in the reading to Midian refers to the land of the burning bush, where Moses spent the 40 years between the time that he fled Egypt and his return to lead the Israelites out of bondage. This is what Beekner says. At its heart, religion is mystical. Moses with his flocks in Midian, Buddha under the bow tree, Jesus up to his knees in the waters of Jordan, each of them responds to something, something for which words like shalom, Oneness, God even, are merely pallid souvenirs. I have seen things, Aquinas told a friend. I have seen things that make all my writings seem like straw. Religion as institution, as ethics, as dogma, all of this comes later. Religions start, as Frost says poems do, with a lump in the throat, or with a bush going up in flames, or with a rain of flowers, or with a dove coming down from the sky. When I told my aunt that I was entering the ministry, she said, Was it your own idea, or were you poorly advised? (laughs) And the answer that she could not have heard, even if I had given it, was that it was not an idea at all. It was a lump in the throat. It was an itching in the feet. It was a sickening of the heart at the sight of misery. It was a stirring in the blood at the sound of rain. Here ends the reading for the morning. When I ended my term as president of the Unitarian Universalist Association in 1993, I vowed that I would never again preach in the pulpit of any minister who had not been kind to me when I was president. (laughs) That automatically eliminated 50% of the congregations. But not this one, because neither Justin nor Kate had entered our ministry when I was president, so they had no occasion to offend me. Moreover, John Cummins, your minister emeritus, has always been a good friend, and Drew of sainted memory, one of my dearest compatriots, and this church, one of the most revered in the association, and so it is my privilege to have been with you this weekend to 
conclude your 150th anniversary celebrations and my delight to see the vibrancy and strength of this church and Justin's new ministry. Congratulations to all of you. The way I want to help draw together these months of contemplation of your heritage and of your future is simply to call back two of the great affirmations that have energized this church and indeed our religious faith for at least those 150 years. First, a conviction that human beings have a deep and abiding worth that requires that they be treated with care and dignity. And second, that creation itself, in all its misery and mystery and magnificence, reflects elements of grace and grandeur that make it worth cherishing. I want, in other words, to talk to you about justice, what Friedrich Buechner described in our reading this morning as a sickening of the heart at the sight of misery, but also about beauty, what he refers to as a stirring in the blood at the sound of rain, justice and beauty and the relationship between the two. According to order number five from the State Religious Affairs Bureau of China, issued in August of 2007, any Tibetan Buddhist lama, that is a priest or a monk, any Tibetan Buddhist lama who is intending to be reincarnated after death must complete an application and submit it to four government agencies for prior approval. Should any lama appear in reincarnated form without government permission, he will immediately be arrested. The official government news agency explained that order number five was, quote, an important move to institutionalize management of reincarnation. Now, I don't know a lot about Buddhist notions of reincarnation, but I do know that after a lama has died, the way he knows that he is destined to return to life is that he becomes a spectator of what one scholar has called a panorama of gorgeous hallucinatory visions like a wonderstruck child watching moving pictures on a screen, sort of Sort of, I guess, like half of us felt watching Walt Disney's Fantasia stoned 30 or 40 years ago. (laughs) Not you, of course. (laughs) But for the bad llamas, who are just going to stay dead... The pictures they see are more like bad horror flicks. The way to tell, in other words, whether you're going to live again or stay dead is by how much beauty you contemplate. Now, I don't know a lot about beauty and aesthetic theory either. Indeed, I know so little about art that sometimes when I visit a modern art gallery, I feel as disoriented as Charlie Brown must have felt when Lucy once asked him, Charlie Brown, in the great cruise ship of life, some people place their deck chairs to the floor and look at what's coming, and others place theirs to the aft and look at what's past. 
in the great cruise ship of life, Charlie Brown, which way is your deck chair facing? And Charlie Brown replied, in the great cruise ship of life, I'm one of those who can't get my deck chair unfolded. <laughs> but let me tell you why beauty interests me. There is a smell in refugee camps, which once you have inhaled it, you never forget. A smell of goat dung and human waste, of sweat and tears and unstaunched menstrual blood, but also a smell of desperation that gives way to sagging shoulders and the decay of the human soul. For a body can be clothed in the raiment of fear or stalked daily by death for only so long before the soul, whatever it is that makes the human animal human, begins to collapse upon itself as surely as the shoulders do. When I visited the enormous Kalama refugee camp in Darfur, Sudan a few years ago, 90,000 people who had been burned out of their villages, their menfolk murdered, many of the women raped and battered. I was struck, of course, by a thousand things. The, the children who called out to us repeatedly the only English word they knew, ironically enough, okay, okay, with the thumb sign up when there was absolutely nothing okay. But what really took my breath away was this. A young woman who amid the utter squalor and degradation, her clothes such as they were tattered and falling off her, who wore around her neck a lovely piece of jewelry, just glass no doubt, but a turquoise-colored glass that sparkled constantly in the relentless sun. At first, at first I thought it was a religious symbol, and I asked my Arabic-speaking translator to ask her what it was. She says, it is me, he told me. And at first, at first, I didn't understand. And I thought that she had simply said, it is mine, and that he had mistranslated. And so I said to him, what did she say? Did she say it is hers? No, no, he said definitively. She said, it is me. And suddenly I understood. Give us bread and roses, chanted the women on the picket lines. Yes, we want restoration of the 54-hour week. We need more than $8 a week to feed our families. We want bread, of course. We have to be able to live, but we want to live with at least a shade of dignity, too. We want to know that we are more than beasts of burden. We want to see ourselves as human beings. We want roses, too. This piece of jewelry, this small, sparkling piece of glass around my neck, this is me. This is how I know that though I am mere brute flesh, bone, water, swollen tongue, excrement-stained thighs, my most private parts exposed for all to see, that though I am brute flesh right now in this horrific camp, I am not just that. I retain a tiny hint of my humanity. I require bread to live, yes, so do the cows, the goats, the sheep, the pigs, bless them all, but none of them, 
None of them decorate themselves with turquoise glass. Only human beings do that. Only humans look on a sparkling piece of glass and call it beautiful. And I am a human being still. And I demand roses too. The reason refugee camps are such frightening places is not just because they strip us of our clothes and take away our food and deprive us of our shelter. The reason is because there is barely a whisper in them that we are more than a body, that we have needs of the spirit too. I don't think it is only striking textile workers or starving refugees who feel that way. I think on some level it is true of all of us. It is not just that beautiful things make us happy. Lots of things do that. It is that our ability to appreciate beauty is what makes us human. As human beings, we need more than the base necessities of life, critical as those are, and that need for more than bread is what reminds us, and most importantly, it is what reminds those who would harm us that at least until we lie crumbled in the dust, we have some value beyond the price that our organs will draw on the open market. In this sense, I think beauty really does remind us, as it does the dead llamas, of who we are. Now, I don't want to claim too much here. I don't want to claim that beauty alone is enough to save the world or soften a a brutal heart. First of all, some people are more aesthetically challenged even than I am. Gertrude Stein used to say, I like a beautiful view, but I like to sit with my back turned to it. And secondly, there is this. In the movie The Lives of Others, a character named Draymond plays a classical sonata on his piano and turns to his girlfriend and says, Can anyone who has heard this music, I mean really heard it, still be a bad person? Indeed, the screenwriter of that movie says that the entire movie was inspired by reports reports that Vladimir Lenin, one of the most brutal and hard-hearted men in the world, could not listen to Beethoven's Appassionata because it made him cry and want to treat people kindly. When in fact he knew that those same people had to be beaten mercilessly in order to make the revolution. What would have happened the screenwriter wondered, if someone had forced Lenin to listen endlessly to the Appassionata. And yet we all know that there were no more appreciative listeners to Bach and Beethoven and Mozart than Hermann Goering and Heinrich Himmler. Beauty alone cannot save us. You'll remember the famous parable of the king who reached into a cage full of songbirds and picked one out and held it in his hand and then slowly twisted its neck certainly until the last spark of life had been squeezed out of the little creature. Tears, tears stained the king's cheeks. He wept uncontrollably and one of the remaining birds in the cage turned to a comrade and said, look, look, there is hope. The king cries. And the other bird replied, no, no, look at his hands, not at his eyes. I get quite impatient 
quite impatient with Unitarian Universalist ministers who preach sentimental pablum about the beauties of nature and say nothing at all about the workings of power. I remember a cartoon from years ago in which the wayside pulpits of an Episcopal church and a Unitarian Universalist church were both visible on a street corner. It was Easter, and the title of the Episcopal rector's Easter sermon was The Truth and Power of the Risen Christ. And across the street, the Unitarian Universalist was preaching a sermon entitled Upsy-Daisy. Well, I'm sorry, but an upsy-daisy theology is just not good enough to save the world. But if beauty alone cannot save the world, I suspect that very few people can live without some share of it. Consider the role that our surroundings play in shaping who we are, the spaces we live in, the ways we decorate our homes, the art we place on our walls, the architecture, the aesthetics of our cities. The essayist Elaine de Botton tells of an occasion in London in which a sudden rainstorm forced him to seek shelter in a McDonald's. Within moments, he was overcome with despair. The setting, he says, seemed to render absurd the, li- the idea that life might be worth enduring. The harsh lighting, the intermittent sounds of French fries being sunk into vats of oil, the frenzied behavior of the counter staff, it all invited thoughts of the meaninglessness of existence in a random and violent universe. As soon as the rain stopped, de Botton sprinted for Westminster Cathedral where he said, and I love this line, the stonework kindled a yearning for me to live up to its perfection. Isn't that one reason we tidy up our homes and decorate our tables and glory at a sunrise and stand in awe before a butterfly and worship in a lovely space and kindle beauty where we can because the world can be an ugly, chaotic, untidy place. And in that little space of it that we occupy, we want not to be distracted by its ugliness. We want to be inspired. We want to be in reminded of the best that we as individuals and a human race race can be. That's what true beauty does, I think. It reminds us not just that we are human, it reminds us of the best that we humans can be. But not everyone has access to world's beauty. Too much ugliness can obstruct the workings of an amazing grace. That's the connection, then, you see, between beauty and justice, luscious pears, endless seas, jazz by Duke Ellington, paintings by Georgia O'Keeffe. These are precious gifts that the world presents to me, but how can I savor such gifts if I lack the money to buy the pears or the time to visit the sea? Someone once observed that the rich and the poor see the same Paris, but from two different angles. The rich walk over the Pont Neuf, the poor sleep under it, It's the same Paris with its same presentations of grace, but from under the bridge, they're a lot harder to see. If I find a poem beautiful, I want more and more people to be literate so that they can read it. 
If I find a painting breathtaking, I want more and more people to have the wherewithal to pay the museum fees. Beauty inspires us to do justice so that more and more people can know beauty. I sit on the deck of my home in Gloucester, Massachusetts, overlooking the Atlantic Ocean. And when it is warm, I see sunbathers frolicking in front of me on the beach. When it is cold, I see the great blue herons dipping into the salt marsh. I hear the children laughing behind me in the street. I see our elderly neighbors walking hand in hand down the hill. I think of those I love and those who have loved me. And I think to myself, this is the way the world should be. And though I know that only a very few people will ever have similar good fortune, I resolve to do all I can to see that more and more of them have access to a similarly transforming grace. So as you look on beauty, whatever it may be, give thanks for it, for without it you would quite literally not know that you were human and would not be inspired to be the best that you can be. Without it you would have one less reason to care about justice and one less window through which to glimpse the glimmer of a large and abundant grace. The great social activist Dorothy Day, founder of the Catholic Workers' Movement, was once sitting in her kitchen, speaking with a woman who was obviously mentally disturbed, who was speaking in incoherent sentences, words jumbling out, making no sense, totally distracted. The psychologist Robert Coles, who was then a graduate student with the movement, came into the kitchen and tried to interrupt them, but they ignored him. Coles tried again, and he was similarly rebuffed. And then finally, Dorothy Day turned to Robert Coles, and she said, Yes, Robert, what is it? Did you wish to speak with one of us? Did you wish to speak with one of us? Beauty and justice. That's the good news of Unitarian Universalism. That's what this church has taught for 150 years. That's what it has nurtured and preached and heralded and fought for. And that's why you have spent these months remembering its history and recommitting to its future. Because as we go marching, marching, In the beauty of the day, a million darkened kitchens, a thousand workshops gray are touched with all the radiance that a sudden sun discloses. For the people hear us singing, bread and roses, bread and roses. Amen.